Well, before we uh, get in today's passage in First Peter, uh, just a few housekeeping items. First of all, I was talking about uh, how the Word of God encourages us to long for the Word that points us to Jesus, and I recommended a resource that might help you. I said it was in the Resource Center, and it wasn't, but it is today. The book is Read the Bible for Life. Uh, it's edited by George Guthrie. Just a wonderful guide that will help you understand God's Word. You can find it in the Resource Center. And something else that can help you is this small groups binder, which you can also find in the Resource Center. It's a wonderful way to just, uh, you know, keep in one place the uh, messages that we're going through. And uh, if you're in a small group, take it to your small group. You've got all that you need there uh, to follow the messages and accompany uh, prayer requests from Willingdon. Okay, let's um, get into today's message. Dead stones now living. You know, sooner or later, all of us will have to answer three questions, or we'll try to answer them. Uh, Who am I? Whose am I? And what is my purpose in life? An answer to the first question, who am I? It's an identity question. It'll give us a sense of belonging, and it will help us answer that question about our life purpose. In our society, people identify themselves in all kinds of ways. Um, by their ethnicity, by the language that they speak, by the culture that they identify with, by their occupation, the sports team that they cheer for. And yet, even though people are identifying themselves in all of these different ways, it seems like people suffer from an identity crisis. There's an uncertainty in relation to who people are and whose they are. Where do they belong? In my own life, I see different influences. There are German-Dutch influences, there's Canadian influence, there's Brazilian influence. Some of you may be influenced by Filipino culture, at the same time ethnically Chinese, and now you're in Canada. So who are you? Who am I? We are influenced by many different religions. We may actually have multiple uh, uh, occupations. You may uh, be an IT worker at the same time you teach and you're an investor. Well, who are you? How do you identify yourself? These questions are critical in our age. And people that have a solid identity are more equipped to live in the real world. How does coming to Jesus help us understand who we are, whose we are, why we're here? When we come to Jesus, we actually walk into a new identity. We're born to a living hope. We're born into a new family. This family has a local expression right here at 4812 Willingdon Avenue. It also has a global expression. There are families of faith around the world. It also has a historical connection, a connection all the way back to Abraham. This week, We are celebrating on Tuesday, October 31st, 500 years of the Reformation. So on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, he nailed 95 theses to a wall in Wittenberg. And that is considered to be the beginning of the Reformation. What was he writing about? Well, he was critiquing the church's authority over the purchase of merit to reduce eternal punishment. The gospel had been commercialized. It had undermined 
The way that it was being presented, it actually undermined the person and work of Jesus. You see, in the 16th century, there was a massive rereading of the scriptures. There was a rediscovery of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. This movement that came to be known as the Reformation, it is identified by five solas. So now we're going to have Latin class, okay? We're all going to learn Latin. This is fun. Every language teacher will have told you that, right? Language, this is going to be fun. Sola Scriptura. What does that mean? By Scripture alone. So our faith is not based on church tradition or on human reason, but on the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura. Sola Fide. By faith alone. We are justified by faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Sola Fide. Sola Gratia. By grace alone. Salvation is the gift of God. It is not earned by our works. Sola gratia. And then there's soli deo gloria. To the glory of God alone. We don't live for our own glory or the glory of a man or a pope or a clergyman. We live for the glory of God alone. Soli deo gloria. And then the fifth one is solus Christus which means through Christ alone. We are not saved because we are members of a church. The church is not the vehicle of salvation. The Pope is not the one that uh, uh, graces us with salvation. It is through Christ alone. So five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Soli Deo Gloria, Solus Christus. So now you can speak Latin. Well, those five solas, they are core to what it means to be a Protestant Christian grounded in the scriptures. One of the foundational texts for solus Christus is the text that we read today. You know, this text that talks about who Jesus is, who we are in light of Jesus, whose we are, where we belong, and what our purpose is in life. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A beautiful text. It talks to us about our our spiritual Direction about our foundation as living stones. What Peter is saying here is that the disciples of Jesus in his time, they were dead stones, but now they are living stones. Because of their faith in Jesus, they've been born to a living hope, and their new nature, it is derived from the resurrected Christ. 
As living stones, they're being united into this spiritual house that is alive, dynamic. This word house that Peter uses, it it reminds us of what Jesus says about the temple, that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So Peter, when he talks about house, he's identifying this new spiritual house with those disciples. They are the spiritual house, a house where the Spirit of God rests. There's a Another text, a parallel text in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So these living stones that have been reborn as they have come to Jesus, they now have full citizenship in the house. They're no longer without a home. They have a home. How has that happened? Well, Verse 4, as you come to him, as the stones have come to Jesus, as they engage in this personal, ongoing relationship with Jesus, God is joining them together. These living stones, they're being fit together by the Holy Spirit. They are from all nations, all languages, all peoples, and God is forming them, uniting them into a spiritual house where the Spirit of God dwells and Jesus is at the center. So what's the focus direction of a disciple? It's a very simple question with a very simple answer, but we often forget. The focus direction of a disciple is Jesus. It's Jesus. We're following him. Discipleship is not completing a series of lessons. If you haven't taken discovery classes, I'd encourage you to take them. But being a disciple isn't just completing some classes. It's about being pointed to Jesus. And so those discovery classes will point you to Jesus. And then you follow him. Uh, This week I was wrestling with a conversation that I needed to engage in. And I was just praying for God's counsel. And so I was in Matthew. I was reading Matthew 11, Matthew 12. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. In Matthew chapter 12, this is what it says about Jesus, that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, he will not snuff out. And that was the counsel that I needed to engage in that conversation in a way that Jesus would. We follow Jesus. Who is this Jesus that the living stones are united to? Well, it's Jesus. Living stones are united as they come to the living stone, Jesus. What does Peter say about Jesus? Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. And when he talks about Scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament. There are probably six or seven Old Testament passages that just serve as the basis for what Peter writes here in the seven verses that we read. And he quotes three stone passages, all three stone passages actually, from the Old Testament. Isaiah 28 Isaiah 8, Psalm 118. Why does he quote them? Well, there's this tradition in Judaism that the stone refers to the Messiah. So let's read them in that light, that the stone that Peter writes about, 
He's quoting from the Old Testament that it actually refers to the Messiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Down to verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What is Peter saying? If we go to Luke chapter 20, there's a story told by Jesus, and I think it helps us. So Jesus, in Luke chapter 20, he is speaking to a group. Most of the people in the group would have been Jewish. He tells this story. There was a man who had a vineyard. He was the owner of the vineyard. And he went away for a long time. At the appointed time, at the time of the harvest, he sent a servant to get his share of the crop. The servant went, and when those that were taking care of the vineyard, the tenant farmers, you see, the man of the vineyard had left his vineyard in the hands of tenant farmers. When they saw this servant of the owner coming, they mistreated him badly and sent him away empty-handed. The owner of the vineyard, he sent a second servant. The same thing happened. The servant was mistreated badly, sent away empty-handed. The owner sent a third servant. The same thing happened. Finally, the owner of the vineyard said, I think I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. So he sends his son. And when the tenant farmers see that the son has come, they realize that he is the heir of the vineyard, and so they throw him out and they kill him. The owner of the vineyard is the father. The tenant farmers are Jesus' hearers, the Jewish people. The servants that were sent, the prophets. The son, of course, is Jesus. And after Jesus finishes telling that story, he quotes from Psalm 118. If I go to Luke 20, verse 17, the end of 17 and 18, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is the living stone, he's the Messiah. He's the Passover lamb. He's the one sent by the Father. But he is rejected by his own people. That word rejected means that he was was examined, he was observed, but he was considered useless. The people listening to him, they were building their own house, their own religious system. And Jesus was observed and considered to be worthless for their their purposes. He needed to be discarded. He needed to be removed so that they could move on. He was like a loose stone on the way that a traveler trips over, stumbles over. So as I reflected on these verses, I asked myself some questions. Is Jesus sometimes a stumbling stone for me? Is it possible that at times we're working on our own project. We have something that we want to get done, something we want to accomplish. And if Jesus is in our life, then we expect him to serve our purposes. And when he reroutes us or he changes the plan, we stumble over him. Is Jesus the living stone that we have come to that has given us life? Is he our focused direction? Or is he just something that we seek to add 
to our lives. He's there just to make us a bit better. For those who rejected Jesus, he became this rock of offense. He became, what that means is an occasion to sin. They disobeyed the word, it says in verse 8. That word disobey, it has a very strong sense. So they, they choose not to hear, they choose not to believe. There is actually conscious rebellion. It's not accidental, the fact that they stumble over Jesus, that they reject him. It is willful. They choose to. Uh, Andrew Clavin, he's uh, a rather famous American Jewish writer. Uh, one of his books uh, was True Crime, uh, Clint Eastwood. He made it into a film. He starred in that movie. Clavin has won many awards. This is his testimony. He grew up in a Jewish home. I love stories. For as long as I can remember, as I studied literature, I realized Jesus was at the center of Western literature. I went into my bedroom, closed the door, and started to read the gospel according to Luke. While I was reading, my father opened the door without knocking, walked in, and caught me reading the gospel, and he was furious. He was cursing at me, and I was trying to explain to him, I'm not reading it for religious purposes, just for literary purposes. I just wanted to know what these guys were writing about. And he pointed his finger to my nose and said, if you, ever for, if you ever convert, I will disown you. I had only one ambition, to be a novelist. I applied to Berkeley University in California, was accepted, and then entered into a dark, depressing moment in my life. I was torn up, so broken, I couldn't write stories that people could understand because my mind was so messed up. I was full of rage and confusion. But I thought, okay, I'm just a typical intellectual. My books became unreadable. I was in my bedroom one night contemplating suicide. I was thinking to myself, I don't know how to live. In the background, the radio was playing a baseball game, and in the baseball game was one of my favorite players, Gary Carter. Gary Carter was a, a devout Christian who always gave Jesus the credit at the end of the games, and it drove me crazy. So on this night, when I'm contemplating suicide, they interview Carter after the game and ask him how he could run so hard when his knees were bad, and he said, sometimes you just have to play in pain. He didn't talk about Jesus. If he had, I wouldn't have heard it because I had pushed God completely out of my life. And I remember thinking, I can do that. I can play in pain. And I never thought about suicide again. God used Gary Carter to speak to me. One night, I did an experiment. I hadn't prayed before, and I just prayed this simple three-word prayer. Thank you, God. Next morning, I woke up, and suddenly everything was different. Everything was clear. I had wanted to see things clearly ever since I was a child. As an artist, you want to be connected to life. But you can't be directly connected until you are directly connected to the source of life. And God is the source of life, and you can't know God unless you know him through Jesus. Suddenly I was connected to life. I had life in abundance. Andrew Clavin was rejected by his earthly father. 
But now he was connected to the living stone. Now, in the eyes of his heavenly father, he was chosen and precious. He could now write. We'll come back to his story later. Jesus was rejected by many of his own people when he was here on earth. He was rejected by Andrew's father. What did God the Father think of Jesus? This is a critical question. What did God the Father think of Jesus? It's critical for us because our identity is tied to Jesus. Verse 4. A living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So to the Father, Jesus is the living stone, vindicated by his resurrection. To the Father, Jesus could not have been more chosen and precious. That word chosen means select. The word precious means honored. Could not have been more honored. He's the cornerstone of the spiritual house. At that time, a cornerstone was laid, a massive stone. Everything added to the house was aligned with that stone. That stone steadied the building. It was the foundation stone. Jesus is the cornerstone according to the Father. He is the foundation stone of everything that God is building. And so when we talk about our identity, when we talk about our spiritual direction, the foundation of our lives, living stones are established on the cornerstone, Jesus. That's where we are to be grounded. That's where we are to be established. Everything in our lives is to be aligned with Jesus, the cornerstone. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they are two living stones. So this story, it happens after the resurrection, after Pentecost. Peter and John, they're going to the temple and there is a lame beggar on the steps. He's asking for silver and gold. Peter and John have none, but they say, we can pray for you in the name of Jesus. So they pray for the lame beggar, and he is healed. The lame beggar is ecstatic. He's praising God. A crowd gathers. Peter proclaims the gospel. The Jewish council is offended, and so they apprehend Peter and John. Peter says this in response to the council. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 9. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone. And they all would have understood what he's saying. This Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. You were building your own thing. But you rejected the cornerstone. They rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So as I said before, Jesus is the foundation stone of all that God is building. There is salvation in no one else. Solus Christus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you grew up in an Anabaptist church, you probably saw that verse on the wall of the sanctuary. 
It's a foundational verse for the Protestant Reformation. It says in verse 6 here of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, will not be put to shame. There's a double negative there. And so it's just the strong denial. Those who trust in Jesus will be honored with a privileged identity here in this life and at the revelation of Jesus. When Jesus returns on the last day, they will be honored by the Father. They will not be put to shame. What happens when we're shamed? What happens when we're shamed? We're humiliated, right? We lose a sense of honor in the sight of others. If we embrace the shame being thrown in our direction, then it feels like there's something wrong with us that we cannot change. The disciples of Jesus... In the first century, they were being shamed by the Roman rulers. You see, they were not conforming to the belief system of the Roman Empire. They were not following the ethic of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire wanted to control them, and so they were shamed. They were called haters of mankind. These disciples of Jesus were referred to as being haters of mankind. Is that what is happening in our day in Canada? I read an article in the Globe and Mail this week, and it was referring to some people that were challenging the new educational curriculum, just asking questions. And the response in the article was that these people were hate-filled. That's shaming in our day. You see, if you don't conform to the new ethic of the Canadian majority, you will be shamed. We are not in a free-thinking society. And so, in order to stand in our day, we need to be grounded in Jesus. We need to understand our identity in Christ. What it means to be a disciple of him. We need to understand who we belong to, the family of God. We need to understand our life purpose. If we don't understand, if we're not grounded in the cornerstone, we will be washed away by the shaming that happens in our day and will continue to happen. So we need to know who the living stone is, Jesus. We need to know who the cornerstone is of the church, of all that God is building, of our individual lives. Peter says to the disciples that he's writing to, hey, in the midst of the shaming you're experiencing, you're being united by the Spirit of God into a spiritual house. You're actually grounded in the cornerstone Jesus, nothing to worry about. You actually have an eternal purpose. What is that? Verse 5, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So Peter is identifying these disciples as being the new Israel. He's grounding what he says in Exodus chapter 19, Isaiah 43. They've been born to a living hope. They've been born into a new community. Okay. What's the identity of the living stones? Chosen race, selected by God. So at that time, he would have said to the disciples that he's writing to, you are Jewish, you are Greek, you are Roman, you are Cappadocian, you are Bithynian, you are all full members of the family of God. Today, speaking to to us, he would say, okay, you are Farsi, Arabic, Cantonese, Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Filipino, Russian, German, English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and a few others. The good news, if you're in Jesus, 
you are full citizens of the family of God. Full citizens. You have found your home. You belong. Royal priesthood. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest? You know, a lot of people died in the 16th century because they believed in the priesthood of all believers. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, all disciples are royal because Jesus is their king. He is their ultimate allegiance. All disciples of Jesus have direct access to God by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus. All disciples of Jesus are priests in the new temple, not just ordained ministers, not just the pastors, all disciples. That's their identity. All disciples of Jesus mediate God's blessings to the nations. All of us, all of us that believe in Jesus are to be these channels of blessing in the world. A holy nation All of us set apart for the glory of God. A people for his own possession. That word possession, it's it's a word that refers to the king's private possession, what is most special to him. So all of the earth, the whole universe belongs to the king, Jesus, but he has chosen us as his special possession, as his own. We are chosen, treasured mediators of God's blessings. That's a distinctive honor. So like Jesus, we may be despised and rejected by family. We may be despised and rejected by society, but we are chosen and precious in God's sight. We belong, and we not only belong, we have a profound purpose. Here's the reason for our existence. Verse 5, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. End of verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as priests in the world, in the real world, we offer worship and thanksgiving. We direct our hearts to God. We call others to worship. We love and share all that we receive from God. We share with others. We don't live self-centered lives. The gifts that we have received, we share We live for God's glory, not our own. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That word excellencies, it means the wonders of what God has done. The mighty acts of God. What he has done in history, what what he's done in our own lives. We tell the story. We proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. And so we are chosen to be priests in the real world. Is it possible to be these priests in the real world? A story from World War I. This is the beginning of the 20th century. I first read this story in a dissertation, and then I heard it firsthand from a Ukrainian uh, pastor. World War I, uh, it was a chaotic time. In southern Russia, in many of the young men, they were called into the army. Some of them chose to serve as medics. Their desire was to provide healing. Those that were Christians were praying for soldiers. They were giving out New Testaments. They kind of formed uh, what they called a soldier's mission. And during World War I, Bolshevik Revolution... Many soldiers 
came to faith. The war ended in 1919, and after the war, one of those young men, his name was Jacob Dick, he was in Moscow. He'd been trained as an engineer in Berlin, Germany. And so the war has ended, and he's thinking, okay, what do I do now? Do I return to my engineering career, or do I seize the opportunity that's in front of me? He called together, you know, other believers in the Russian army, others that had served as medics alongside him and said, you know, why don't we follow the soldiers home? There's a lot of pain in southern Russia right now. Why don't we ask the Red Cross for tents? If they give us the tents, let's divide into groups. We will follow the soldiers home. And in the group that he called together, there were German Mennonites, there were Jews, there were Lithuanians, there were Russians, people from different ethnic groups that had come to faith in Jesus. And so they decided to form this tent mission. They followed the soldiers home. As they did that, they ran campaigns in different villages. In the mornings, they would offer discipleship classes. And so they'd do very basic things. They would teach new believers about their faith in Jesus. They would help them learn to study the scriptures and they would help them learn to counsel new believers. That was the morning. Afternoon and evening, they would provide free medical care and proclaim the gospel. As they did that, in village after village, people were coming to faith and these small groups of new believers were forming. It was a chaotic time. Remember, this was the time of the Bolshevik, Bolshevik Revolution. So on October 26, 1919, Jacob Dick and many Russians were murdered brutally by rebel forces. There was another man, a teacher in St. Petersburg. When he heard what had happened, he left his teaching post and went down to gather the remaining workers. He encouraged them and said, this mission must continue. And it did. Before World War I and the Russian Revolution, there were about half a million evangelicals in all of Russia. After World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution, there were over three million evangelicals in Russia. That is people, disciples of Jesus, understanding that they are to be mediators of God's blessings in a dark time. That's disciples of Jesus understanding that they are priests. Remember, Jacob Dick, he was not a clergyman. He was not a pastor. He was an engineer. But he understood that God had a purpose for him in his time. And he called others to it. What would God have us do as priests in the real world today? Jacob Dick wrote, love is a centrifugal force always moving the Christian witness from the believing center in the church to the unbelieving circle in the world. We are all called to be priests in the world, to mediate God's blessings. Two final reminders. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At first, it comes right out of the prophet Hosea. If you're a disciple of Jesus today, if you're one of those living stones that has come to him, then it is sola fide. It was by faith alone in Jesus. It is sola gratia. It is by grace alone. 
It is solus Christus, through faith in Christ alone, that you today live, that you have a living hope. And if you are not a follower of Jesus today, then for you as well, it is by faith alone. It is by grace alone. You will never earn your salvation. It is by grace alone. It is through Jesus alone. He is the only one that can, can take you from darkness and transfer you to light. Andrew Flavin, that Jewish writer, American Jewish writer, he writes, It has been a remarkable adventure following Jesus. It's been the difference of sailing in absolute darkness on a stormy sea and sailing in darkness on a stormy sea, but you can see the North Star. So you know where you're going. Maybe you find yourself in a dark storm today. And you can't see the light. Jesus would say to you, come to me, I'm the light of the world. Maybe you feel like a dead stone. You don't understand the meaning of your life. Dead. Again, Jesus invites you to come to him. He is the only one that can transfer you from darkness into light. But to come to him, you have to hear and believe and trust, surrender, confess your sin, receive God's forgiveness, receive the gift of eternal life. God has life for you. It's God who calls you. It's not me or the church. Salvation is through Jesus alone. It's the Father who draws you. He draws you out of love. The invitation is for you. And if so, if you are hearing that call today, if you understand that to be God's voice, I urge you, surrender to Jesus today. There is life in him alone. Your destiny is determined by your response to Jesus. You can choose destruction and death or You can choose life. The Father says, choose life. Come to Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. So, Father, first I just want to pray for those that have never surrendered their lives to you, that have never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so if that's you today, if you find yourself in darkness and you're yearning for light, if you are here feeling like a dead stone and you are just calling out to God for life, then I invite you to pray with me. Father, I... I need you. Father, I'm broken. I'm dead. And today I'm turning from my independent ways. I'm turning from my own plans. I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you and I'm asking you, Lord, for life. Thank you, Jesus, 
for coming, for giving your life for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, for taking my sin upon yourself. I ask for forgiveness, my sin. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness. I ask for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to live within me, to to give me the strength and the courage and the power to follow you. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. I surrender to you in Jesus' name. If you, just a minute before you go, I want to, if you've prayed that prayer, you're welcome to come forward. Go to the Welcome Center or talk to the person that brought you. Don't go home without talking to someone about that decision. I want to pray for those of you who are disciples. Father, I just, as we conclude, I pray for those that are your followers here. I pray that they would understand what you have taught through your word this morning. May they remain grounded in you. May they remain united with you, coming to you day after day living in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit. Thank you, thank you that you're present to counsel us each day. Lord, may we live for your glory in this day. May we be your priests. May we be those mediators of your blessing wherever we are this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.